Well, hello. Good morning. Let's try it again. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Welcome to church. If you're uh, new to the mill this morning, I'd invite you to go on your smartphone to the mill.church slash welcome. The mill.church slash welcome and fill out our digital hello card. We'd love to have a record of your attendance today and know who's with us. You can alternatively uh, do that on a hard copy at the high tabletop at the back on your way out today. Uh, but we'd love to know who's uh, here with us. couple uh, housekeeping announcements I want to give you this morning are these. Stepping Stones Daycare has opened as of Monday of this last week. That's quite a mile marker. It's exciting. They got word that uh, the state had approved them for licensure, and they opened Monday morning in our building. This is a daycare that is unaffiliated with the Mill Church and, and utilizing our space to provide daycare. However, its uh, owners attend our church. In fact, Eric and Sierra are in the seats this morning, and uh, they're faithful. Sierra was making coffee for you today, and so we're thrilled for you guys. Congratulations. This is amazing. It's awesome. So well done. Well done. Also uh, wanted to announce that uh, I just wanted to tell you a story that's, uh, that's kind of cool. And it goes like this. Um, roughly a year, a year and a half ago, somewhere in that time frame, uh, we got a call from a family. This part of the story I've told you before who just really wanted to support foster care ministry and they heard we had a dynamic program here and um, ended up through a series of talks that that we shared that really at what we do for foster parents doesn't cost any money. Um, so while you would love to support us, you know, this is just elbow grease and grit and people bringing meals and mentoring kids and doing things to encourage families. So thank you. And the question was asked, well, what else does the Mill Church need? And through um, a couple hours of conversation, I shared uh, some of the Mill Church's needs. And that, long story short, led to the donation of all of that indoor playground equipment, which serves our kids faithfully every week. It also led to, in time, the a, a donation, among other donations that enabled us to finish off our blacktop this year. That's going to be happening in a very short amount of time and in a couple weeks, I'm hoping. If not, at least by the time the snow falls, we'll be driving on asphalt here. That's exciting. It also facilitated a conversation surrounding our Edgar location and helping them get into uh, a building, what we thought was going to be a home that we were going to purchase and and retrofit for a church, didn't end up working out. The family pulled it off the market, and we then had an opportunity to buy land in Edgar. This is directly across from the Edgar IGA. Uh, this is, um, I believe, a, an acre and a half or two acres or maybe three or four, I can't even recall now, but our trailer is currently sitting there with the Mill Church logo on it. Um, this isn't far from right next door to Nicolay Bank, right next door to Chad's Auto. This, If you ever dated anybody from Edgar, this is likely the parking lot that you uh, smoked or chewed or did something else that you're ashamed of in as a child. Um, so we bought this parcel and the idea was to construct new and this family came back to us at a later time and said, what else does a mill church need? And we said, well, um, you know, we, we didn't end up buying that house, um, but we felt like God was leading us to buy this land. And I kept them updated through the process as well. And, and turns out, we announced this in Edgar last week, and I want to announce it to you, that another donation was given in the amount of, $500,000, that's a half a million dollars 
which is going to enable us to build new in the village of Edgar, likely next year. Isn't that remarkable? So God is up to something among us. I hope this story inspires your generosity as well and wanting to be someone who's in the river of God and blessing what God is doing. I I almost hesitate to share a story like that because the last thing I want you to do is think we're made of money. This affects operating expenses. Zilch. These are designated funds for a building in Edgar. They don't help us turn on lights. They don't help us pay staff members. Uh, They don't help us offer church on the weekends. But it's a tremendous, tremendous miracle that God has blessed us with to have a permanent home in Edgar. Our Edgar families are nomads. You know this, right? They have moved from location to location. The Edgar High School Auditorium, we got booted out of there for COVID. We ended up in the Oak Street Park. We've been in the town of Wien Hall. We've been at Minnow Ponds Park. We've been everywhere except for a building that we own and can leave our keyboard and stand set up and can leave our guitar sitting out on the stage, and can leave, you know, chords attached to where they need to go. That's going to be our reality next year in Edgar like it is in Stratford. And again, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. God has been faithful to us. It's, it's just awesome. The last thing I want to do before this morning, and I... And I uh, I was thinking about just praying for Afghanistan, but, but, but we have a lot going on in our world. Besides Afghanistan, I think that's probably the biggest rock, but uh, I'll remind you that we've got uh, what was downgraded to a tropical storm, but a very big storm barreling down on the northeast this morning as we meet here. Uh, heavy, heavy population density, right? A lot of people, and I know what we think, them Yankees, you know, who cares? These are people who, loves the, who love the Lord. These are people who are loved by God, even if they don't love the Lord. These are people that we want to lift up and take before him this morning. Uh, there's also, as you may be aware, many, many, many Delta cases in the South, uh, where I'm from, all the way you know, down to Louisiana, Texas, that whole stretch, that whole band of the Southeast, the healthcare system is being stretched and stressed, and so we want to lift up those in the southeast as well and pray that God keeps that away from here. Amen? So let's just bow our heads this morning. Heavenly Father, we just bring these needs to your attention. God, we know that you're aware none of this surprises or shocks you. You are sovereign. You're in control. Lord, we trust you. We just pray, Father, that you would be with our Afghan brothers and sisters uh, this morning. Lord, those who are believers and who are sheltering in place or fleeing to the mountains or, or asked to put X's on their doors if they have daughters so that they might be identified and taken into the sex trade or as wives. Lord, these various reports that we're hearing, we just pray that you would put your healing balm on that land, that you would protect these children, these women. Lord, we pray that you would protect the people who have advocated for peace in that land, that you would do... Old Testament style miracles in that part of the world and just preserve and lead and guide and protect in Jesus' name. We pray that you would assist in this evacuation, that we would get as many out as quickly as possible uh, for their sake, for your glory. Lord, we pray also that you would be with those who live in the Northeast, Lord, as this storm uh, barrels down this morning, God, that you would give them peace in their hearts, that you would allow the infrastructure and, and everything to hold up and power and, and everything that they need, Lord, to, to facilitate for traffic flow and, 
just uh, protect people, Lord. Allow buildings to stay standing and functional and not to, to fall into disrepair and have safety concerns and hazards. Lord, and last, we just pray for all of those who are affected by this uh, virus, by this disease. Lord, especially our brothers and sisters in the lower states uh, where systems are being stretched. Lord, that you would be with the health care providers, that you would be with those who are sick, with their family members. Lord, I pray for one of our missionaries, Charlie Chivers, today. Special touch, Lord, a, a ministry for the disabled in central Wisconsin and around the world. That you'd be with Charlie today, Lord, who's been airlifted to Appleton. God, protect him, preserve him, allow him to breathe, allow his lungs to function properly. In Jesus' name we pray. We love you, Lord. We trust you. Amen. Amen. Well, again, good morning. Uh, welcome to the mill. We take uh, Sunday mornings to read and explain books of the Bible. Today is no different. We're in the Old Testament book of Daniel right now. So open your Bibles, if you will, to Daniel chapter 7. I'll admit Things are going to start getting a bit odd. We are no longer in the cool stories that we read in, in Bible books as kids. Um, the story of Daniel in the lion's den, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're actually going to start, start to dabble, I would say fully immerse ourselves, in the remaining chapters of this book in biblical prophecy. Biblical prophecy. Now, uh, the second half of the book of Daniel, it can feel to us bizarre. It can be intimidating. Daniel has dreams about beasts. He has dreams about dragons, uh, the Antichrist, the end times. I know some of you love this stuff. You uh, would, would talk about this every Sunday if we could. Um, I will tell you that I grew up in a church that loved to talk about this when I was a kid. Um, I grew up in an era where we talked a lot about the end times. We showed movies on Sunday nights about the rapture. There were even prophecy conferences. There were charts that went up on pastors' walls that showed how... FDR was likely the Antichrist, and how Jimmy Carter was likely the Antichrist, and it used to be said that there were two surefire ways to fill up a church. One was to preach about sex, and the other was to preach about the end times, which makes me wonder what would happen if we preached a series on sex in the end times. Wouldn't that be fascinating? We could probably fill up this place with people itching ears, eager to hear, um, but let me encourage you with this. Prophecy makes up about 25% of your Bible. In fact, every uh, mention of Christ's first coming as a baby in Bethlehem is met by eight mentions of his second coming, which has yet to happen. Therefore, it's prophetic. In nature. So while scholars have argued for years about what the prophecies mean, I don't think it's proper to just skip over them. I don't think we should do that and just stop at Daniel 6. Uh, the Bible says of itself, all scripture is God breathed and is useful to us, to us, excuse me, for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the Bible says this is valuable, so we're going to stick with the program. So far, uh, the first half of this book has chronicled the adventures of four Hebrew immigrants who are in a pagan land called Babylon. They were taken captive we have seen Daniel, our main character, not only survive in this secular space, but he's thrived there. And you'll notice that up till now, the dreams in the book of Daniel were dreams that were had by or dreamt by pagan kings. And Daniel wasn't, in large part, the interpreter. 
Um, now, what's interesting, in the latter half of the book, the tables are going to kind of turn, the coin is going to flip, Daniel himself is going to be the one that starts to have dreams. And the church is going to be the institution that interprets, in that case, us. We're going to be God's people that are going to interpret Daniel's dreams. So let's hope we get it right, okay? Uh, So let me begin by asking this question. What is your attitude about the future? What's your attitude? Do you see the future as stressful, or do you see the future as peaceful? Are you the kind of person who's thoroughly addicted to cable news? Are you the kind of person who's always griping about how the world is going to hell in a handbasket, as it said? Are you always depressed about what we are leaving to our children, to our grandchildren? Are you the kind of person who finds yourself hating those, hating those who vote the other way, in the way that you don't vote, particularly people who call themselves Christians? And you think, how could you be so dumb? Maybe you're the kind of person that's always trolling. I really hope this isn't you on social media, always leaving people nasty messages. Okay, or, or are you the kind of person who, while you may be concerned about the future, you still have a sense of optimism about what God is doing? You still even love those who voted the other way. You might strongly disagree with them, but you love them. So, in a word, what would characterize you this morning, your outlook about the future? Would it be that of the stressful variety, or would it be that of the peaceful variety? Because I think Daniel distinguishes in the remaining chapters between these two outlooks. In chapter 6, I told you Daniel was 80 years old. In chapter Seven, he's in his mid-60s. So either the history wasn't recorded in a chronological way or it wasn't organized in a chronological way. But there's a lot of details and we can get bogged down in them if we let ourselves in the ensuing chapters. Daniel has dreams about bears and leopards with wings and talking horns and chariots with wheels of fire. And we start to wonder if maybe Daniel needs a drug test. What did he eat last night for supper? Right? Did he go to Asian Day (laughs) Uh, at Stratford Family Foods? Right? What's happening with with Daniel here. Um, But I want to show you that running through these details, all the way through them, is a simple, easy-to-follow message. That's what I hope to communicate. Um, So don't be overwhelmed, okay? Just hang in there. I think this is going to be beneficial for us. Verses 2 through 8. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Now in the Old Testament, we'll stop there, press the pause button. It's already interesting, isn't it? Told you. In the Old Testament, beasts were metaphors for World governments. Everybody say world governments. Nations, right? Kingdoms. So we're looking at four kingdoms. Okay, let's keep reading. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and it was made to stand on two feet like a man 
and the mind of a man was given it. What does this represent? Most say this represents clearly Babylon, the wings getting torn off, represent Nebuchadnezzar. If you would remember, we read the story in Daniel. He was brought low. He was turned insane. He even started eating grass like a cow, which is even today a psychological condition, though its name escapes me. And so he's lifted up off the ground and given a human mind, he's restored, okay, which represents him coming to his senses. And then we, we read right in the middle of the book of Daniel, he even seems to have this conversion experience where he looks up at the heavens and declares that the God of Daniel is the one who is above all, in all, through all, sovereign. He has this conversion, it would seem, experience. Verse 5, and behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. This bear represents Medo-Persia, which conquered Babylon. The fact that the bear is larger on one side than the other side represents the fact that the, that the Persian Empire was bigger than was the Empire of the Medes. And eventually, Persia would take over. Okay, are you tracking? Say yes. All right, verse 6. And this I looked afterwards, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given it. The third animal represents Greece. Everybody say Greece. Keep in mind, it's easy to get lost on this, but keep in mind, Daniel is writing much of this 200 years before this stuff happened. So this is amazing. It's amazing he's telling us what's going to happen. He's, he's predicting how the nations of the world are going to conquer each other. So the third animal represents, in particular, who's the leader of Greece? Alexander the Great. The fact that the leopard has wings communicates the speed at which Greece took over the world. Alexander the Great, by the age of 30, had done this. It's mind-blowing. Like, what have, what have you accomplished by 30? <laughs> Alexander took over the world. Like, that's a, that's a big feat by worldly standards. An incredible warrior, maybe the greatest conqueror the world has ever known. Uh, in fact, in 323, when Alexander conquered Persia, he brought with him, it said, 35,000 soldiers to Persia's 100,000. In that battle, Persia lost 20,000 men, and Alexander lost 100. Remarkable military strategist. It was, an, it was an away game for Alexander, too, I'll also add. It was in the opponent's nation. And the four wings represent how Alexander's kingdom would be given to four generals. Okay? His four generals got into an argument, and he just said, fine, I'll give you each basically a quarter of the empire to govern. Verse 7, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. Irons representing strength here. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. The fourth beast, if you, if, if you remember, were following exactly the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had about the big statue. If you were here that Sunday. Um, same interpretation. The fourth beast is Rome, who would conquer the Greeks. 
its iron teeth represented Rome's incredible strength. It had ten horns. Rome, Rome typically, um, or I should say horns typically in the Bible, represented much power, the ability uh, to do damage. Um, just think what happens to an animal without a horn if it meets an animal with a horn, right? If your house cat, um, or if your gerbil, or if you're a ferret, right, faced off against a ram or a rhino, okay, or a unicorn, just kidding, but something with a horn, it would, it would lose, right, in all likelihood. So typically the horn wins, the bull wins. Now if you recall, again, this vision's tracking with with Nebuchadnezzar, but then we have new detail added. Verse 8, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And here we have, in the book of Daniel, the first reference to the Antichrist. Think of, notice Daniel says, that eyes like the eyes of a human. The eyes seem human, in other words, but when you look into them, you see something different. Think of one of those horror movies that you've watched. In fact, if you're an 80s kid, think of Michael Jackson's Thriller music video. Do you remember the moment in the music video where his eyes, human eyes, turn into that of, of a zombie or, or of an evil? Okay, This is the kind of thing the scripture is hinting at. Think of one of those horror movies. You look into the killer's eyes and you see something that looks not human but demonic in nature. Notice in the text that this individual's mouth was speaking arrogantly. In other, he, in other words, he blasphemed. Uh, he boasted against God. Now, we're going to move on from this point to chapter 8. We're going to skip ahead. Same idea, but from a different angle. Okay, This time, the vision is about a two-horned ram. Everybody say, two-horned ram. Okay, for Tar Heel fans, this is like heaven reading this scripture, okay? Because our mascot is, is a two-horned ram and a goat. I've heard a Duke fan said that uh, this scripture uh, validates Mike Krzyzewski and the work he's done at Duke University because the goat, the greatest of all time, Mike Krzyzewski, was at Duke, the two-horned ram, Chapel Hill. If you know anything about those two basketball institutions, uh, they're right down the road from one another and one of the greatest rivalries uh, ever. Same idea, different angle. Verse 5, chapter 8. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against the ram and struck the ram and broke his two horns. So, the two-horned ram is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. The goat is Alexander the Great, who defeated those two empires. Verse 8, Then the goat became exceedingly great. When he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Who's the little horn that came out of one of the four horns? That would be our second reference in the book of Daniel to the Antichrist. Okay? Verses 16 through 17. And I heard a man's voice, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when I came, or rather when he came, I was frightened. I fell on my face, but he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. 
verse 21. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Okay, uh, Alexander the Great, get this. Alexander the Great, I told you, died in his, I, did, I don't know that I to, said this, he died in his early 30s, conquered the world by 30, died in his early 30s, likely from alcoholism. And remember, Daniel's writing all of this 200 years before it happened. I think it's pretty cool, the level of detail he's giving us. It's, it's easy to overlook that. Let's keep reading, verse 22. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. I'll read that again. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are, the, who are saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in, in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but not by a human Hand. So forgive me, a moment ago I misspoke. This is the second mention of the Antichrist in the book of Daniel. So out of those four horns of Greece, a small, ruthless horn would emerge, would arise up, that would be especially cunning, especially tricky, especially violent, um, especially vicious towards God's people. Now here's a bit of a tangent, okay? This is where this gets interesting. Around 170 BC, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes arose from out of the four sub-kingdoms of Alexander the Great. Remember I said his general split off into four areas of the kingdom? Out of one of those four areas, Antiochus Epiphanes arose. Verse 9 prophesied that a little horn would aim his conquest toward the south, toward the east, this would have had been from Greece's perspective. So this would be Egypt. This would be Israel, which is exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did. The specificity of this is amazing. As Daniel prophesied in Daniel 8, he was, in fact, ruthless. He's been called the Hitler of the Old Testament. He murdered 80,000 Jews upon entering Jerusalem. He murdered old women. He, he murdered pregnant women. He murdered kids. He issued coins in Israel with an image that read, King Antiochus, God in the flesh. How many of you know God doesn't take too kindly to people that call themselves God. Doesn't typically end well for them, right? Like the guy who said, not even God could sink this ship in regard to the Titanic. And to top it all off, um, this Antiochus, he set up his statue in the Holy of Holies of the temple. He made the Jews worship him there and to throw insult onto injury, he ate bacon, he ate pork, he ate non-kosher meals in the temple specifically to offend God's people. This would be um, a blasphemy against God. This would be what theologians have called, um, I think scripture even refers to it as this, as the, an abomination of desolations. In other, words, in other words, there's a lot of desolation. This is the abomination of death. This is the worst of the worst. This is as bad as a guy can get. Imagine if someone took over the mill church and turned this into a brothel full of children that could be leased. This is the level of offense. And then, out of nowhere... Antiochus develops a stomach virus. He goes insane. 
and he dies. Not by human hands, just like Daniel predicted. Not by human hands, but by God's hands. Um, I'd, I'd also point out that a lot of these events are recorded in the Apocrypha, which the Catholics hold to be authoritative. We don't in the angelical sphere. These books that are kind of couched in between the Catholic Old Testament and New, they added those in defiance of Luther much later on. Um, But historically, they have a lot to share with us. Um, And we find this, a lot of this, in, in the apocryphal books. The point is, it's safe to say that Antiochus Epiphanes was the specific fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. Now, you may be thinking, Zach, I thought you said he was the Antichrist, this guy Daniel's talking about. Here's what's interesting. Later Bible writers, like uh, the, the words of Jesus, um, like Paul, um, they teach us some important things about prophecy. Prophecy is very unique in that oftentimes the events that fulfill prophecy happen at multiple times in human history. A first fulfillment, and a second fulfillment. Jesus and the Apostle John and Paul made us aware that the events in Daniel 8 were clearly fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes. Excuse me. Excuse me. Jesus, you can tell this is confusing, okay? I want to preach out of the second half of Daniel said no pastor ever uh, in the history of mankind, right? Um, No, this is fun. This is exciting. But bear with me if I'll correct myself as as I go along. Jesus and Paul and John, who all lived um, some uh, couple centuries after Antiochus Epiphanes, all used Daniel 8 to point to someone after Antiochus Epiphanes, an antichrist. So there was an initial fulfillment, and then there was a latter fulfillment. Even though Antiochus Epiphanes, scholars are pretty in sync on this, fulfilled this prophecy of Daniel 8, Jesus, John, Paul, all used Daniel 7 and 8 to point to something still to come. So you could say that the whole book of Revelation is built on the prophecies of Daniel 7 and 8. This leads us to our first point. Now I'm going to kind of move into some practical application. You say, thank God, right? Okay, I need something to take home with me, Pastor. First, the prophecies um, about the Antichrist are already not yet fulfilled. We say this about, theologians do, Jesus. We are already not yet saved by Jesus. Meaning, we've already been separated from our sin. Though we were scarlet, now we are white as snow. Our sins are as far removed as the east is from the west. There are people in Afghanistan this morning whose sins have been removed. They're already saved. Their status with God has changed. But clearly, they are not yet saved saved. Jesus' second coming has not happened yet. They're already saved, but they're not yet saved. This tension also happens in prophecies. For many prophecies, there is both a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And the near fulfillment gives you a picture of the far one. Think about it like this. If you've ever been to the Rocky Mountains, you can stand on one peak and you can see in the distance a couple of peaks, for example, and you think they're one and the same mountain. But then if you get to the first one, you realize, wow, the other peak that I saw is 12 miles beyond this one. Right? They weren't one and the same peak. So from a distance, um, they, they, they were alike, but they were really separate. That's kind of what prophecy is like. Antiochus Epiphanes was a picture in the way that he desecrated the temple, in the way that he was outright blasphemous of what the ultimate Antichrist will look like. 
When the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about the future Antichrist, he does it in terms similar to Daniel 8. I'll begin reading at verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will come, will not come, until the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. You've heard this about the Antichrist. He's going to be kind of like Pharaoh's magicians. Right? He's going to have all these signs and wonders that accompany him. And you could be tempted to buy in if you're not watchful, if you're not cautious, if you're not careful. Verse 8, I'll back up. The lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So Paul says a future Antichrist is coming and he'll do all the same things that Antiochus Epiphanes did. By the way, uh, what's interesting is that the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. And it's been said that it will be rebuilt, but it hasn't yet. And there's been talk of that. There's been no follow-through yet. Passages like this one imply it will happen eventually, and the Antichrist will seat himself in the temple of God's people. Number two, in every age, the spirit of the Antichrist is at work. In every age, one of the two Antichrists may not be, maybe, but may not be in our age, but his spirit is still at work. 1 John 2.18 Children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know it's the last hour. Many Antichrists have come. That is to say, many with the spirit of the Antichrist have come and will come. Even though the ultimate Antichrist is coming, the spirit of the Antichrist is here. This means we can take principles from Daniel 7, 8, and we can learn about what the enemy is doing in the world. Right now, today, as we live. Uh, there are three things these chapters teach us about what the Antichrist is up to. I think chapter 7, verse 5, where he says he devours much flesh. I don't think that's that hard to believe, do you? I mean... We typically think about, you know, World War I, World War II as ages ago, but in reality, on the timeline, we're talking about the last hundred years, right? Roughly. That's not that long ago. How do we look at things like the Holocaust and just chalk that up for human evil if the spirit of the Antichrist really isn't at work? I mean, how do you do that? Do you just, you know, Adolf Hitler, an art student, right? An art student just develops some nationalistic leaning and, and the next thing you know, he's marching six million Jews to their death. Like, does that make any sense at all? There's got to be something more. There's got to be a spirit of the Antichrist at work inside of him. This isn't just human cruelty. It's got to be something demonic. Um, the 20th century, believe it or not, was the bloodiest century in all of history. We look at, we look at, at civilizations that have come before us and we think they're so barbaric. It's awful the way they did warfare back then. Well, think of this 
last century in 1915, Turks came to believe Armenians are sharing the country with them, that they're a problem. April 24th, Armenian liquidation day. 600,000 murdered in cold blood. Japanese declared Black Friday during World War II. Japanese troops went through uh, an, an uh, Alexandra Hospital in Singapore, bayoneting all of the patients. Doctors. Nurses. 1932, Joseph Stalin executes 10 million of his own countrymen and starves another 7 million to death for grain quotas. Mao Zedong. Pol Pot. King Jean-Il. Rwanda, you add all that up, that's a lot of death. Can we not see the spirit of the Antichrist working in the abortion industry today, in our age, in what's happening on the streets of Afghanistan? The spirit of the Antichrist will aim to devour flesh. Second and third, chapter 8, verse 25, he'll cause deceit to prosper through his cunning. He'll be tricked. He'll be uh, He'll have trickery, and, and he'll be tricky, and by his influence, he'll exalt himself. The Antichrist will both question God's word and exalt man. Do we not have God's word being questioned in our public institutions? In our entertainment? In our newspapers? In our corporate headquarters? On our social media platform, people making little of God and people making much of themselves. I'm not saying your professor is an antichrist. I'm not saying that Mark Zuckerberg is the antichrist. I'm saying there's a supernatural power at work in the world trying to deceive people to turn against God and trying to deceive people into promoting themselves. And here's the bad news. We can expect these things to continue in the wrong direction for the rest of history. I hate to burst your bubble. I hate to. I'd rather tell you the truth than tell you a lie. It's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. And if that scares you, you can give yourself fully to Jesus Christ today by admitting that you can't save yourself, that only he can save you and have the joy that people have in their homes in Afghanistan. Because the days of leave it to beaver are gone. The days of Mayberry are over. And you say, Pastor, that's depressing. I'm glad then that you came to church this morning so that I can give you the good news. Because here's the good news. Point number three. Even in the age of the Antichrist, the Ancient of Days still rules. He still rules. So let me take you back to Daniel 7 and show you. I'm, I'm over. I'm over my time limit. I want to show you what Daniel says in the middle of all these prophecies about darkness and judgment. This is encouraging. Verse 9, Daniel 7. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took a seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head is like pure wool, and his throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning. God's throne has wheels. He's not static. He's moving. He's involved. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Thousand, thousand served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment. And the books were opened. I don't know about you. I love the phrase ancient of days. You ever heard the phrase, I wasn't born yesterday? You ever said that to your kids? I wasn't born yesterday. The, the name ancient of days is God reminding us, I wasn't born at all. I've never been born. I've always been. See, nothing gets by God. Nothing will outlive God. Nothing surprises God. We've been shocked. 
And what's happening in Afghanistan? Did you, do you know who wasn't shocked? God wasn't shocked. He, there's never been a moment that he wasn't fully in charge. Daniel 7, 12. He alone is worthy to judge the nations, and that's what he's about to do. So sit down, little horns, right? Sit down. God's purpose will prevail. Persia took over Babylon. Persia then paid for the temple to be rebuilt. The Greeks took over the world. The Greeks made Koinone Greek the common language by which the gospel was told to hundreds of thousands. The Romans came in, and though they were cruel, they built the Romans' roads, which allowed the gospel to get to the Roman city, the heart of the empire, and spread out all over the ancient world. God uses all of this for his glory. What is happening right now in Afghanistan is no doubt the spirit of the Antichrist. You know what Tertullian said, one of the early church fathers? He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Rest assured, in every disaster, the church will move forward. One day, God, who rules over the world, will come down and rule in the world. In the new earth. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would encourage us this morning. Lord, let us not lose heart. Lord, let us pray fervently for our brothers and sisters abroad. Lord, let us not fear in Jesus' name. Lord, your word in Proverbs 3 says, we'll have sound sleep, the people who trust in you. Lord, give us sound sleep in Jesus' name. Let us sleep like babies, not dismissing the wrong, not dis- not not ignoring that we're living in the age of the Antichrist, but in our trust in you, the Sovereign One. You're over it all. We love you. We submit to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you as you give.